Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, shalom. I hope you are all doing well. It is so good to see your faces. Uh, and yes, I can see your faces right now. Um, it's a crazy week. It's a crazy week. My head is combobulated. That may very well come out in this fellowship. And I'm grateful for your patience if that does happen. Uh, that's the comforting thing that this is a the long haul that we're together. And sometimes I can go out on a limb and really try to articulate a message that myself, I don't know if I fully have grasped, put myself out there. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to try. But uh, anyways, it's really good to see you. And I want you to know that someone in the fellowship, I didn't get the permission to say their name. They're working on uh, creating this platform to uh, connect us all in, in deeper ways than we've been connected to before. Uh, because I think out of all things that can take this fellowship up a level, a deeper connection to each other is really very high up there. Um, but before we dive in, uh, I want to I wanna vent. Can I vent? Is that okay? I'm looking at your faces, your heads, because Jeremy and Tehila and their family, they've left. And somehow they got me very excited to take their cat, this cat, and they dropped him off at, at our house last night. And we were happy about it. We were excited about it. And um, within 12 hours, I have come to harbor a very deep dislike and resentment against all things that are cat related. Um, she drew blood almost immediately, if you see that. Um, she jumped on little baby Shiloh's stroller and she uh, insists on climbing on my face at every moment. It's, just, it's like a, a terror. And, and, uh, and I re realized Jeremy's like, oh, it's the best cat ever. You'll love it. You'll love it. And in his heart, he's like, oh, this is going to be good. Ari's going to be stuck with my cat. And so, and so now they're gone. So if anyone has cat advice, please let me know. Uh, and this is actually compounded by the most unusual chicken scenario uh, that I find myself in right now. We're building this peanut chai, this like petting zoo thing next to our house. It's a long story, but uh, we wanted to have some sheep in there every night. Vash is like, tell me stories about the baby sheep, baby sheep. It's all that she talks about is baby sheep and chicken. So that's where, what we were going to get. And uh, somehow, did you know that there are chickens that are not kosher? Chickens that are not kosher. I never knew that. And their eggs are not kosher either. If I thought ahead that I was going to share this with you, I would take a chicken, uh, a picture of this special chicken that's not kosher because out of all the thousands of different species of chicken in the world, that's the one that I first get as my first chicken in my first chicken coop. And uh, so I have the first non-kosher chicken. It's called meshi in Hebrew. I don't know if it's called meshi in English, but, uh, but I guess I'm just having some, some animal issues. Anyways, so Jeremy and Tehila and their family are off to America for two months. And they will be sorely missed here at the farm. And they're going to send in, they're either going to come on live in the future or they're going to send in videos. And I'm going to try to keep it real and keep it exciting and have a lot of different sort of videos, update you on thing, what's going on at the farm, because I'm a little bit intimidated of the fellowship that we have in front of us. It could be great and it may not be. We'll see. We'll see. But they're going through America right now. And really our loss here in Judea is America's gain because I just picture a minivan cruising through the U.S., just glowing 
with light from Judea. So I want to start, I thought maybe we'd start uh, joining together to bless Jeremy and Tehillah on their trip. So Hashem, right now, Jeremy and Tehillah, they are in the air. They're in the air. Please bless them in their journey. Bless their family on their trip to America. Allow them to bring the holiness of Judea with them and to share the love for you and the love for your land and the love for your people with everybody who they encounter and really allow them to inspire, to inspire everybody that they meet and to be inspired by those that they meet as well. Please let them shine your light on a country that needs light very much right now, on a world that needs light very much right now. Amen. Okay, now before we, uh, before we launch in, I want to say I, I thought we would try something sort of new. I don't know if it's going to work, if it's a good idea. But uh, maybe if you have questions, raise your hand on that little hand raising thing. And maybe if you have questions and a lot of you feel like there's a question to ask, just ask and I'll ask Tabitha. Tabitha, I know you're listening. By the way, I always forget, Tabitha is an angel that is so unbelievable that without her, Jeremy and I, there's no chance we would have gotten this far. And she's such a blessing to us and she's so selfless. And so thank you, Tabitha. And so Tabitha, if people are raising their hand, uh, then say, like, if I say, hey, Tabitha, call on them, then let them speak. We'll see how that goes. I don't want to put you guys on the spot. But anyways, this Torah portion, it is about an argumentative Jew, uh, which seems redundant, right? Like, you know, the saying two Jews, three opinions. And, you know, every at the farm, the joke was that we got here. And uh, first, when I was living here all alone and I built two synagogues, one that I pray in and one that I would never step foot in. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's a Jewish joke that there's always arguments. And there's always a synagogue that you'll never go to. So, um, so even if you say that it's an exaggerated stereotype, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. And we have an entire compendium called the Talmud that's core essence is debate and argumentation. So much so that it would really make your head spin. I don't know if any of you have tried to delve into the Talmud. I have. I'm not a Talmud guy. I'm not a Gemara guy. My, my brain isn't built for it. I revere it. I respect it. But, you know, when I go to a lawyer, I, I hire a lawyer because I haven't read through the books of law. I think that nowadays, especially, there is a disproportionate amount of time in American Jewish institutions that is spent on the Talmud to the exclusion of the Tanakh. You know, and I understand that throughout history because it was difficult to connect to King David, the warrior poet. And so we sort of got immersed in the, the legal Jewish law, but now it's, it's a different story. Anyways, I, I, used to, I used to take exams in which I filled up two whiteboards with the argumentational flow of just half a page of the Talmud. And very often there was no clear victory. There was no solution. The conclusion was called teku, teku, which means we don't know which opinion is correct. We will just have to wait for the prophet Elijah to come and issue a definitive ruling. There's one word for that, it's called teku, let's wait for Elijah to come. So, uh, so what was it about Korach that made him such a sinister character, right? If every Jew is so argumentative, what was it about him that made his very name synonymous with the unnecessary and disingenuous dispute to the degree that the Torah actually tells us in chapter 17, verse five, do not be like Korach in his congregation. 
right? His, his very name has come to define conflict and dispute. It's like, oh, don't korach me. Let's just have an honest discussion. You know, that's, that's what it's like. Forgive me, I'm going to drink a cup of water. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam shahakol bidvaro. All right, so um, so let's dive in because I think the answer to these uh, questions will shine some light, not only on our on our lives, but really on on a world that's growing more divided and more polarized by the day. Do you guys feel like that? Like it's just the whole world is just so constantly, perpetually disagreeing with each other. I even made the mistake. Sometimes I go on Facebook to uh, just see what's up. You know, I don't spend too much time there, but I saw there was a woman that posted, you know, she said she was talking about this group called the Proud Boys and how they stormed the library to disrupt what was called Drag Queen Story Hour. Have you heard of this? It's so crazy. I don't even know what to do with it, where these like transgender drag queens are reading to little kids in the library. And she said, me and my daughter Hadassah, we love drag queens. These people should be ashamed of themselves. Baruch Hashem. I was like, this is like a religious, God-fearing woman, at least by the way she's talking, by the words she's saying. And so I made the mistake of trying to positively, honestly open up a discussion and a dialogue, and it just became so ugly. People were just throwing names at me and accusations. I was like, wow, I guess I was actually going to bring the, uh, the whole discussion, uh, but I couldn't find it, fortunately, I guess. But um, it's just things are getting ugly. Anyway, so let's, let's go to the beginning of the Parsha, right? Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Korach, son of Yitzhar, son of Kahat, son of Levi, separated himself. And with Datan and Aviram, sons of Eliav, and On, son of Pelet, the offspring of Reuven. Okay, so that's the first verse. Um, I, I really am trying to get back in and just dive in and go verse by verse and go through and just talk about it in that chronological order. I have a feeling we're not going to get that deep into it this time. But anyways, we'll give it a shot. So in the first verse, the scene is set, and we are meeting these main characters, right? The rebels themselves. Korach's lineage is given all the way back to Levi. But interestingly enough, it stops right there, right? Just one generation short of taking it all the way back to Yaakov. Now, in my mind, it would have just been too jarring right, to have his genealogy, Yaakov's genealogy traced all the way back, uh, or not Yaakov, Korach's genealogy traced all the way back to Yaakov, the father of the tribes of Israel. Remember Yaakov, the Sadiq, the righteous man who witnessed the angels ascending and descending the ladder of heaven, and for Yaakov's name to be even mentioned in the verse introducing this character of Korach, it would have just been, it would have been sad and like not a wonderful legacy for him. And, uh, and, you know, I'm remembering the Tanakh. There's another place where there was an idolater, and it was Ben Kershon Ben Menashe. And the Nun in the word Menashe was very, very small because it was actually Moshe. But the, but the, the authors put in the small Nun to cover up that it was Moshe exactly for the same reason, to, to protect his honor in a way that he didn't deserve to be defamed in that way. And so the sages say, actually, that his lack of inclusion in that verse was the fulfillment of his prayer from Genesis chapter 49, verse 6, in which he was, he, was, he was talking about Shimon and Levi clearly from the previous verse. And he says, Oh, my soul, do not come into their council. To their assembly, let my honor not be united. 
right? He didn't want to be dragged down. And in that way, it stopped right there with Levy and his name wasn't added. He didn't want his, uh, you know, bottom line is out of respect for Yaakov, we didn't go there. And so here we have the characters and their lineage, which is really relevant, right? Because each of them have their grievances. There were the Levites who felt that they were overlooked from being Kohanim, from priests, uh, which they considered even more prestigious positions than they already had. Because let's remember, they were already, right? They were the bearers of the Holy Tabernacle. They were entrusted with high level honors and responsibilities, yet they felt surpassed in the hierarchy of holiness uh, by the uh, nepotistic family favoring Moshe, who appointed his brother Aaron as the high priest. And keep in mind, I don't think they thought this. I think that the idea was inceptionated into their brain. There was one man, Korach, that just drove it through and drove it through and very persuasive. And then there were Datan and Aviram, right? The descendants of Reuben, of Reuven, who clearly were still bearing a resentful grudge that they lost their birthright because of their forefather Reuven's indiscretion with his father's concubine. You remember that story. He lost his birthright. And the 250 leaders that we'll read about in a moment, the sages teach us that those were the firstborn who lost their collective status due to the golden calf, and they were replaced by the Levites. So anyways, it's just, it's a coalition of grievances. Everyone is just upset and feels that they aren't, what do they say in America? That they aren't privileged, right? And so even, you know, in the family of Israel, there's a lot of baggage. There was a lot of resentment. So at the very least, we can look at that dysfunction and remember that the dysfunction we have in our, our own families, well, we're not alone, even in the nation of Israel and even in the Jewish families today. There's, there's, it's something that we all face. And I realize that a lot of people, when they realize that there's dysfunction within fa other families and not just them, even the families and sometimes particularly the families that look the most harmonious and smoothest, there's a lot, okay? It's part of just the way that we are built as families and as tribes. Anyways, I hope that's comforting in some way. So, uh, so as you know, right, we talk about this a lot. The events in our personal and our national lives are very often always reflected in the Torah portion. It's always true. We don't always have the eyes to see it, but it's always true. But I remember the last year uh, when, uh, when the uh, parking, you remember the parking lot event? That happened in the in the Shari Tzedek Hospital. It was a crazy thing. Tabitha, if you could play this while I'm talking. There was this sinkhole that appeared out of nowhere in the Shari Tzedek parking lot that just opened up and swallowed a bunch of cars that just fell into the earth. And they just fell. Look at that. It just opened up and swallowed them. So that happened in the week of the Torah portion of Korah. That's what happened. Okay, Tabitha, you can stop playing. I don't know the phone would be ringing in the background. But um, so that, that seemed pretty loud, but, uh, but I wasn't sure exactly what the message was there, but it felt like it had something to do with the most insane and aberrant government we'd ever seen in Israel that was formed right then during that very week, right? It seemed like the, the same coalition, I actually think I spoke about this last year, the same coalition of malcontents that we saw in the portion, right, bringing together these characters that would otherwise have been at serious odds with each other, they came together with one explicit purpose, right, which was to overthrow Bibi Netanyahu. Now, I don't want to get political here too much, but just for a minute, you know, when I think of Netanyahu, he's done a lot of good things for Israel, but he's also done a lot of 
negative things for Israel. So I'm not comparing him to Moshe, to Moses by any means. I'm simply saying that uh, to have supposedly right-wing Israel-loving Judea-defending Jews supposedly form a coalition with the far-left parties that are bent on surrendering huge parts of our homeland to our enemies, it definitely seems to parallel in, in a pretty extreme way to Korach's coalition, right? They, they, uh, the government, a year ago, they brought in the party named Ra'am. It's okay that I share this with you. It's like current events in Israel, but it, you want to know what's happening in the country in Israel today. So there's this party called Ra'am, which by all accounts is a treasonous, Israel-hating Arab party whose leaders celebrate, like literally publicly celebrate and, and, and advocate the destruction of Israel. And what brought them all together, it was this hatred and desire for power. And this crazy coalition, it just happened, it happened last year during the reading of Korach. I remember there were these memes going around that showed this new government together. And it said, Korach va'adato, Korach and his assembly. And why do I bring this up? Because this past week, on the week of the Torah portion uh, of Korach, one year later, the government fell apart, right? We see this at the Tower of Babel when we're brought together through hatred. It's not true unity, right? Everybody came together to build this high tower, but it wasn't out of a place of love or desire. It was, it was a place of, of fear, and they wanted to be able to be evil and not to be destroyed. Anyways, it's something like that. It's destined to fall apart in an ugly way, and that's finally what happened. They couldn't keep it together anymore, and the leader, Naftali Bennett, was deposed. And Jeremy, he was sharing this idea with me and put it all together. And he thought it was important to, to say that, you know, Korach means, comes from Kireach, Korach. And Korach was supposedly bald and Naftali Bennett is bald and the most bald politician in Israel. I don't think it's necessary to go there. But Jeremy thought that was an, another interesting connection. But, um, but the rebellion that we saw playing out in Israel was birthed during the portion of Korach. And it came to a similar end that we see during the portion of Korah. So that's interesting, you know, and, and it, was, it was definitely worth, worth mentioning. Anyways, um, the, it was just a coalition of angry, resentful, and aggrieved people. So let's go on to verse two, right? They stood before Moses with 250 men from the children of Israel, leaders of the assembly, those summoned for meeting, men of renown. So men of, men of renown, what does that remind you of? For me, it automatically summons the, the very first words of last week's Torah portion that we learned together. Shlach lecha anashim, right? Prestigious men, men of renown. These were not, uh, you know, simpletons, nor were they inherently evil people. Something was going on here, and we would just, we would miss out on a lot if we just wrote them off as ambitious, evil rebels, because, you know, just as each of us have a voice of the spies within us, that voice of, of fear and doubt, well, we, uh, we also, perhaps we have a voice of the rebels within us also. You know, it's definitely worth uh, looking deeper with open minds and open hearts. And we really do need to look at the entire episode with last week's Torah portion in mind, right? The Torah portion of Shlach with the spies, because this rebellion didn't happen in a vacuum. The, the tragic and traumatizing episode of the spies definitely laid the groundwork for this attempted coup. And, and that's what it was. Right After all, Korach, the ringleader, was aggrieved and resentful for some time. Ever since Aaron became the high priest, or they also say when his cousin Elit Safan, the son of Uziel, was appointed the head of the Levites, which he thought should have been his. 
Either way, he said nothing all of that time because Moshe and Aaron were just so beloved. But after the sin of the spies, well, there's just a lot of grief and, and confusion and pain and discontent and resentment. And Korach saw that the conditions were ripe to, to launch his coup. And that's what it was, by the way. It was a coup, right? In the past, there was, there was complaining. There was about issues. They had issues like food or water or things like that. But this was the first time that there was actually an attempt to overthrow the leadership altogether. Right? It, was, it, was, it never became this personal. It was never so foundational. It was never to depose Moshe and Aaron from leadership. So before we get into the substance of their grievance and their argument, meaning like what, what they were actually trying to say, let's take a look for a moment at the motivation of the rebellion itself, because very often we can lie to others about our real motivations for why we do what we do. Even more often, we can lie to ourselves about it. And that's clearly what was happening in this case. On the most revealed superficial level, there was an argument being made, right? But under the surface lurked the, the real reasons. Now, Rabbi Foreman actually suggests that part of the underlying reason that was that brought all of these rebels together was the desire to maintain some type of control, right? They felt on some level that if they could reveal that Moshe was usurping authority and that he was fabricating decrees and in order to facilitate his own power, right? Then they could expose Moshe as a fraud. And then perhaps the decree that they would all perish in the desert would also be undermined and they could actually enter the promised land, right? It sounds a little bit crazy, but as we'll see, you know, it, it was actually a, a sophisticated and nuanced argument. And when you want to believe something enough, there is little that can stand in your way from deluding yourself with intellectual acrobatics to extreme self-deception. Now, again, if anyone has anything they want to say or share, just raise the hands. I want to sort of work that in there. No pressure, just letting you know, reminding you it's an offer. And... Um, so there was a lot of self-deception going on because they were sad and they were grieved and they were scared and they didn't, want, they didn't want to drop dead like flies in the desert. They wanted to go into the promised land and their arguments were not for the sake of truth. They were not for the sake of heaven. They were so disingenuous that as we said, they've come to define the very idea of needless conflict and division. So the most famous lesson regarding this is from Ethics of Our Fathers. I actually found it so beautiful that I memorized it many years ago. Every dispute that's for the sake of heaven will in the end endure. But one that is not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Which is the dispute that's for the sake of heaven? the dispute of Hillel and Shammai, and which is the dispute that is not for the sake of heaven? Such was the dispute of Korach and his congregation. And notice, it doesn't say Korach and Moshe, because that means there's two sides to it. It wasn't really between Korach and Moshe, it was between Korach and his, his group and himself. Anyways, so there's, there's really a lot to, to, to unpack here. The first verse that we often gloss over is that if there's a, a dispute for the sake of heaven, it will endure. If you really think about it, that's, that's a strange way to say it. You'd think it would say that if the dispute or the argument is for the sake of heaven, it's, it's, a, it's a holy dispute, or it will be peacefully, peacefully resolved, or Hashem loves it, but it doesn't say that. 
It says that the dispute itself will endure, that the clash of two perspectives for the sake of truth, for the sake of coming closer to Hashem in truth, that that encounter of ideas is beautiful in and of itself, which explains why the Talmud is so filled with all of these unresolved disputes, because it isn't about the the conclusion or the destination. The dispute itself is a thing of beauty and inspiration. And, and even when a Talmudic dispute is resolved, right, the dissenting opinion always remains. They study it for no less than they study the accepted solution. I don't know if any of you have that in your lives, people that you just talk about God with in Bible and you often debate and you just love it and you just feel so close to this person, even though you disagree with them on almost everything. And so that's why the paradigm example that's given of an argument for the sake of heaven is between Hillel and Shammai, because those two parties, they're arguing. Have you heard of Hillel and Shammai? You know, I'm talking about the sages that there were like these two camps. And anyways, we'll talk about that another time. I have a feeling we're going to go over time anyway, so I can't get lost in that. But uh, their arguments got very intense, but it never got personal. It never divided them. If anything, it brought them closer together. Right, Hillel's daughters married Shammai's sons, and Shammai's daughters married Hillel's sons, even though they had these eternal vociferous debates. And that's one of the signs that uh, that is uh, bought by Rabbi Schiffman, who quotes Rabbi Dr. Kaminsky's book. This book is called Fundamentals of Jewish Conflict. And in this book, he spells out how to identify healthy disputes that are for the sake of heaven, and how to identify unhealthy disputes that are not for the sake of heaven. And he spells out these criteria. One of the criteria is just the general tone, right? If it gets vicious and personal and has an adversarial tone, well, that's quite obviously a sign of ego and of insincerity, right? Those who cannot debate, defame, a very beloved rabbi of mine once said someone that was constantly attacked on a personal level, even though he was just talking ideas. Unfortunately, nowadays, this approach is so commonplace of defaming rather than actually debating and discussing that you could almost say that it's just the way arguments happen now, at least on social media. When you see two people in different camps sitting together, respectfully discussing, discussing issues, nobody even weighs in on the argument. I remember I saw that there's a guy, Russell Brand, that had a debate with Ben Shapiro, he was on the left and he's on the right and Bill Maher, and they were just respectful of each other. And nobody even commented, I'm on this guy's side, I'm on that. Everyone was just like, wow, it's so great to see that two different uh, people can talk and not cancel each other and throw each other out of the Overton window, you know, that window that of what is acceptable and what is not. So anyways, you know, the tone of the argument, that's one of the criteria. Another criteria, uh, that indicates a lack of sincerity is that one or both of the parties don't display intellectual integrity, right, or intellectual honesty, meaning that they aren't really desiring to enter into any sort of dialogue to arrive at a truth at all, right? They say that what they want is, is to get a truth, but really they just personally attack you and call you names and, defa and defame you. We see this today really more than ever, and I think we've, we've all experienced it at, uh, at some point. And by the way, that's the exact opposite of every experience I've had with any of you, right, who have reached out with, with questions and challenges, and it's always 
respectful and loving and so obviously with the desire to arrive at a higher level of truth than before. And really, it's interesting because quite a few of you have reached out to me after these sort of clashes that we have and, uh, and you apologize for it. This has happened a lot. You know who you are. You apologize for it. And to me, I feel like the opposite. To me, it's a sign of closeness and uh, trust and friendship. You know, um, anyway, I, I remember hearing this story about uh, this renowned atheist debating Rabbi Dr. Gerald Schroeder. You know, he wrote Genesis and the Big Bang. And anyways, after hours of debate, he just, he fell silent in deep contemplation for, for like for some time. And then he said something to the tune of, you know, you're right. There must have been a creator. And it was just silence. And he was attacked and he was like, everyone said, how could you betray us? And, but to me, when I heard that story, I mean, I was just so inspired. I mean, talk about intellectual honesty and intellectual courage in my mind, right? In my understanding, such honesty, which directly contradicts years of advocating an investment of your life, just investing time and effort and your ego with exactly the opposite, right? With atheism. Well, that retroactively renders all of those years of that scientist teaching atheism as actually teaching truth, at least in my mind in Hashem's eyes, because it shows that for him, each step of the way, he was teaching the greatest level of truth that had been revealed to him up until that point. And it didn't render those years a waste. That's what the rational, secular mind would think. Well, you've wasted your whole life advocating for atheism. On the contrary, it redeemed and it elevated all of those years in the eyes of Hashem. You hear what I'm saying? That someone could be teaching something as obviously false and heretical as atheism, but due to their honesty to denounce it when confronted with the truth, it would be considered a lifetime of merit. Does that make sense to you? Please tell me if that makes sense to you, because I feel pretty strongly about it, and I want to hear from you if it doesn't. Oh, I see people clapping. Thank you. Anyways, I hope I would have that sort of courage when confronted with my errors. Back to Korah. Okay, so there's a famous Midrash that goes like this. It's from uh, Midrash Tanchuma. It says, you do not find Korah answering any of the arguments uh, Moses presented to him. This is because he was clever in his wickedness. He said, I know Moses is a wise man. And if I debate him, I will lose and be forced to agree with him. Better that I not talk to him at all. Better than I not talk to him. And when Moses saw that there was no point, he separated himself from them. So Korach's fear, right? What do we see there? That his fear was being convinced that he was wrong because then he wouldn't be able to pursue his real goal of taking power. You know, there's times that like, I don't know, when I'm struggling with my evil inclination one way or the other and I'm really hungry and I want to have a slice of pizza and, and I'm just convincing myself and I don't want to hear in my heart, I know it's not true, but I just want to be convinced by the argument I'm making so I can eat that pizza. <laughs> Maybe that's just oversimplified, but that, that, that's what this felt like to me. And, and it, this actually brings us to the last indicator of sincerity, right? If the dispute is centered around achieving a compromise or achieving a sense of peace and brotherhood, then it's quite likely an argument for the sake of heaven. But if it's centered around destroying one person while aggrandizing the other, 
then it's not for the sake of heaven at all. And we can see that uh, Korach's mean-spirited personal attack fulfills all the criteria of what renders an argument not for the sake of heaven. But really, I don't even think we needed any of these criteria. I think if you have a listening heart, you can just tell whether you're with a person who thrives on conflict and, and discord or whether you're around a peacemaker. And I think the, the main criteria is like this. How do they make you feel? Do they make you feel valued and loved? Do you, they make you feel a sense of goodwill and acceptance and compassion for others? Right? How do they make you feel about other people? Or do you walk away from them feeling anger and resentment and animosity? It's just sort of the heart test. And so, you know, Rav Cook, it actually reminded me of, of a story. He's the first chief rabbi of Israel. And he was known to be a, a lover of peace and a hater of conflict. And uh, due to his embrace of so many of the founders of Israel who were secular atheists, he was often vilified and publicly attacked by his fellow religious Jews in the most personal and vicious ways. Like nowadays, we learn Rav Cook is like, who would have the audacity to attack him? But they attacked him viciously. There were times that, you know, they burned his books. And, uh, and there were times that his students and his followers, they were ready to rumble, right, to defend him in any way that they needed to. And he would tell them, if you love me, then do not even respond to these attacks. Don't engage. Don't even engage in them. No matter how vicious the attack may be, if you love me, then love them. Love the attackers. They think that they're doing God's work. Don't even pull down the posters that they're hanging that are defaming me. That's what Ruf Cook said. Now, that's a lover of peace and a hater of conflict. That's the difference between Ruf Cook and Korach, right? Can I tell you guys a story that just happened to me this past week? So I know it's maybe a little bit off topic. But maybe not. I don't know. I think I told you about the crazy thing that happened to me when Sheila was born, that I returned from the hospital and uh, really just wanted a hot meal. And so I threw a steak on the grill and I bit into it. You remember this? And I actually split my tooth in half, like half of it <laughs> fell out of my mouth. Anyways, I shared then that I was so grateful that everyone was healthy and happy that it didn't even upset me. But I still had to go to the dentist who put in a crown. Have any of you ever had a crown before put on your tooth? So if you've needed one, you know that this, I don't know what it's like in America, how dentist procedures compare, but it's an expensive proposition. And it turned out that the crown didn't even take. And I was in all this pain and the dentist said, you know, 20, 30% of crowns, they end up in root canals. You need a root canal. So he referred me to the specialist who quoted the price of the root canal. And it was a lot of money on top of the crown. I was like, who in the world could ever afford such a thing? I should just pull the whole thing out and just call it a day. Like a lot, it was a lot of money. And so I asked the dentist if there's an alternative for the root canal, because it would just be so expensive. And he said, uh, and he said, no, you, get, you need to get a root canal. It's going to come to get you sooner or later. But when he told the specialist of my situation, after I asked him that question about there being an alternative, he told me that the specialist offered to do it for 60% off, which is crazy. That's a lot of money. And when I went to the specialist root canal doctor, he just gave off such a righteous feel to him. He sat me down and he started speaking about the Torah portion and talking to me and saying sweet things. And after the procedure, I had this suspicion and I asked him if it was really him that offered this generous discount, like the dentist said, or if it was actually my dentist who offered to pay the 60% of the bill himself. 
because my dentist is also, he's a famous guy. He's a really righteous, righteous guy. And so he told me, no, the, the dentist is a tzaddik. He's paying. I'm not giving you any sort of discount. I don't know why he said that it was me. And I asked the dentist and he said, no, the root canal guy, he's the one that's giving you the discount. And so each of them refused to take credit and said that the other guy was the righteous one. So while yes, this is a, you know, technically a dispute, it felt significantly to me that it was, you know, during a portion of Korach, where we learn what kind of dispute it was, that this was a dispute for the sake of heaven. And it was also just another one of those, you know, only in Jerusalem stories that I just love to share. So anyways, now considering the criteria we just reviewed of what qualifies an argument for the sake of heaven, let's go to the substance of the argument. And this is where it gets really interesting. Are you guys still with me? Okay, so numbers, chapter 16, verse 3. I'm still going through the verses. I'm still going through one by one. I'm going to get better at this. I'm telling you, we're going to get through the whole Parsha soon. But here it is. They gathered together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, it is too much for you, for the entire assembly, all of them are holy, and Hashem is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves over the congregation of Hashem? Now, although we've determined that Korach was insincere in his motivations for the attack, it doesn't mean that we should ignore his argument because clearly it was powerful enough and it was compelling enough to convince the firstborns and the Reubenites and really most likely Korach himself as to the validity and the justice of the claims. And the more I was thinking about this and going on and what I'm about to say, I realized it's almost proven that he was authentically convinced by his own argument. And, and we'll go into why in a second. But what's he saying here? He's saying that Moshe has created this entire hierarchy of holiness in which there were, you know, ordinary Israelites at the bottom, you know, people who would be farmers or craftsmen or carpenters or soldiers or whatever. And then there were Levites that were like one tier above. And then there were Kohanim who were one tier above them. And then there was the Kohen Gadol, right? The high priest that was like on the highest level. So clearly not everyone had the same mission and the same level of holiness. And Korach, right, in his desire to seize power, asserted that this whole tiered hierarchy was just Moshe's invention to seize power for himself. So Korach was essentially saying, okay, you know, the spies, right? There's a reason this came after the portion of the spies. The spies wanted to stay in the desert and to be immersed in a disconnected spiritual cocoon right, of manna and fire pillars and other miracles. But that was wrong, right? God wants us to immerse ourselves in the physical, in the physical world, because spirituality is most powerfully expressed through the physical world. The physical world is holy. All of it equally. This is what Korach was saying. So why is the high priest at the top and the normal Israelite at the bottom rung, right? The farmer serves God no less than the Kohen Gadol. Why create this whole tiered system? And so uh, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, I don't know if you've heard of him. He, he posts on Chabad. It's really, he's really powerful. He explains it really succinctly, although I think I may have, we'll see, we'll see. He, so he explains it. So here's Aaron, right? And he is transcending the material into the spiritual realm. He's the high priest, right? He's in the spiritual realm. While the simple farmer is utilizing the lowest material realm to serve God with 
his efforts, right, with his tithes and his offerings, first fruits. So what makes the work of the Kohen holier than, or not only holier, more important than the work of the farmer? So do you hear what he's saying there? Each rung is holy and each one is doing its own thing. You know, they're all equally holy, just expressing itself in a different way. It's actually really quite a nuanced and advanced argument if you think about it. Just last week, we were talking about how it's God's greatest desire to dwell in the lowest and most physical mundane realms. We we're supposed to go into the land and we we're supposed to fight with our swords, but knowing that God is fighting through us and we're supposed to plant the, 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 the crops and know that the bread is growing, but not because of our own hands, because of God. And that's the highest level of sanctifying his name. Well, so isn't that where the least holy farmer is, right? He's much more immersed in physicality than the high priest. To tear them up is false and wrong. That's what Korach was saying. Everyone's holy. Don't start playing favorites. And if you do, probably it's the farmer that's the holiest. It makes sense, right? There's like, there's a point there. You can follow that. You know, even now as I'm saying this, I'm like, that's a reasonable argument. What is the refutation of that? Like, where do we go with that? So what was he doing, right? He was, he was taking the argument of the spies to the opposite extreme. They were saying that spiritual life is the ideal, and the more spiritual, the better. The less materialism and immersion in the physical world, the better. But Korach said, no, material life is the ideal. The more materialism, the better. I want you, I'm still working this through myself. We're doing this together here. Rabbi Jacobson, he summarizes it like this. He says that the spies rejected the mundane, but Korach and his followers denied that there was anything mundane about the mundane, that the mundane is no less holy than the holy. I'm trying to explain this. I hope it's coming out clear. I feel like I'm getting it, but that's not what the important thing is here. I want us all to get it. But anyways, I'm, let me try this just one last time. So Rabbi Jacobson brings the, the wisdom of the Hasidic masters. Now it's going to get a little abstract here, but forgive me. Okay, this is just the way I, I can explain myself. The, they explain why Moshe was right. Why indeed there is a spiritual hierarchy. That the material realm is lower on the rung of the spiritual hierarchy than that which is holy and exalted. Right? He explains that why the average Israelite is lower on the spiritual hierarchy than the high priest. And the reason is that the ultimate truth, we've discussed this so many times in this fellowship. You know, there's three words. What are my favorite three words? My favorite three words that, you know, my mantra, it calms me and it comforts me more than anything else, right? The words from Deuteronomy. That's right, Suzanne. Thank you. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 35. Those are the words. There's nothing other than him. Science has taught this to be true, that everything is energy, but the scientists don't really know what to do with, they don't know how to, what to conclude from that, but it's already irrefutable scientific truth. At the deepest core, there's nothing other than Hashem. That's Torah 101, but it's just so hard to believe sometimes that we don't really think about it like we should. So if there's nothing other than Hashem's one, oneness, right, then the more physical and material an object, the more it conceals the ultimate reality that everything is ultimately one within Hashem's undifferentiated unity. So while it's true that on the lowest of realms, 
that's where God's purpose is most purpose is most realized. That doesn't make it the most holy. Maybe it gives it the most potential for raising up the sparks of light, but that doesn't make it the most holy. If you didn't follow that, it's okay. Sorry, just bear with me. So what Korah didn't understand is that the hierarchy is the chain through which the mundane is elevated to the sacred, right? The, the first shearings and the first fruits and the temple sacrifices that the farmers bring, right, from, from their crops, they're elevated from the lowest realm to the highest realm, by, from the Israelite to the Levite to the Kohen to the Kohen Gadol, without being able to make these distinctions of holiness, right? Everybody exists just sort of side by side as as theoretically, they're totally equal, but without any of these, this, the harmonious cooperation and interconnectedness and beauty with which Hashem created the world, right? Everyone would be on the same plane, but they'd be sort of, you know, isolated and divided, as Rabbi Jacobson teaches. And this is, this is always devolves into conflict and factions and divisions, that's what we see in the West today. Everybody's the same. Everything's the same. Nobody's better than anyone else. There's no specific roles that anyone has. No gender roles, no missions, no purpose, nothing. And we see what's happening. How the, the rapid deterioration of the entire culture and the entire country from exactly this Korach idea. Okay, so Korach misunderstood, but still. Why is he considered the prototype of conflict and dispute? Okay, he misunderstood. And his, his argument does sound at face value, like, right, it's like a call to equality or equity, right, as, as they say in America today, it was a call to equity. And so he explains that, in essence, Korach is saying, I do my thing, and you do yours, but it's all equally good. There's no higher, there's no lower, and so therefore, there's neither a need nor a responsibility that anyone has to anyone else. And it's exactly that philosophy that is the source of the greatest and deepest conflicts in the world. Putting everybody, pantheism, everybody is equal. That is what brings, that's why Korach is the prototype of conflict, because that's where his philosophy leads. So, all right, let me just wind this, try to bring it all together here, right now, one final time, because these seemingly nuanced theological differences it may sound, you know, abstract and irrelevant, but these differences in like worldview and understanding of Hashem could have the most profound consequences in our relationship with Hashem, our, our service of Hashem, our behavior in the world, our, our whole journey is very much influenced by just these like sort of nuanced, oh, let, let me explain. So on Thursday, there were these two young 20-something-year-old guys from the Netherlands that, uh, that came by to the farm. And while it was this brief window that I was really planning on preparing for the fellowship, we sat down and for nearly, I would say nearly five hours, they barraged me with questions and arguments. But unlike Korach, it was crystal clear that these arguments and challenges were from the deepest thirst for truth. There was not a drop of ego in them. And so I said, okay, Hashem. I want to prepare for the fellowship, but this is what you want me to do right now. And, and I'm happy I did because their questions were just so beautiful. You just don't get questions like this from Jews. I mean, not, not you get beautiful questions, but it's a whole different 
prism and, and, and perception. And, you know, some of them were just so simple that they were among the deepest I've ever encountered. And one of the questions that they had was regarding what are the practical differences between Judaism and Christianity in, in, in a real way. And this question is just so important. And we were working through it together and discovering insights and truths together. And, you know, no one was trying to defend a position or win an argument. Both of us were just seeking truth. You know, there's the, the one idea about the Satan. That's one of the arguments that I find. It may seem like just sort of a side tangential argument. But when I get into this discussion with conventional Christians, they believe that, you know, Satan was banished and a rebellious angel against God and that he's some sort of force outside of God and it's God versus Satan. And, uh, and that you could just say it's a theoretical argument in, in, in theology. And very often I say like theology, we can really sort of put it aside in some way because it's about our relationship with God. So we can both love God, but this point about whether Satan is a power outside and other than God in conflict with God is so fundamental that it would change everything. And so I often go to that. And with some of you in this fellowship, I've actually discussed that. Because when you, when you overlook these fundamental questions, you can end up with Korach. Because what was Korach? Right? He was advocating for pantheism. Have you guys heard the word pantheism? That's the, the idea that the world is God. That there's nothing more or less holy than everything else. There can't be anything more or less holy, because everything is God. And this, by the way, is strikingly similar to the exact philosophy and ideas of many idolaters, right? It leads you to that place of worshiping rocks and trees, because I've met people like this personally, really in the world today, that worship everything, because they believe that God is within everything. And it's true, God is within everything, right? So where are they wrong? You know, it's, it's, it's complicated. There are nuances here. So pantheism is the belief that God is fully imminent, right, throughout all of reality. The, that God is the creator of the physical universe, but that alone, right, there, there are no boundaries at all. And on the other extreme was the spies who were monotheists. Now you may say, wait a second, monotheists, aren't, aren't we monotheists? Isn't the Torah and Judaism monotheism? So the spies were monotheists. They believed in one God, one completely transcendent God, transcendent of space and time. You know, for all practical purposes, really detached from the physical world. I spent much of my life being a monotheist, really, you know, up until meeting Rabbi David Aaron, um, who I spent an entire year morning to late afternoon learning with, I was really, without knowing it, I was a monotheist. I thought Judaism was monotheism. And on some level, I pictured God as this man with a long beard in the sky. Not literally, you know, but that's sort of the image. Like when I was a little boy, I had this rabbi. His name was Rabbi Radinsky. And he was 6'6", and he was massive, and he had this long beard, and he was so sweet and loving. And God had Rabbi Radinsky's face, you right. know, and, uh, and I thought right, Judaism. I, sorry, what? I'd like to interrupt you for a second. Andrea has a question. Can I ask her to unmute herself? Yeah, well, so you know what? I'm, 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 I'm winding it together, but don't, okay. yes. I, I, and, and Andreas, can, I, can the question wait till the very end? Yeah? Yep. Okay, because I'm, I'm sort of bringing it together here in a way that's even sort of surprising me. Um, 
so I, I spent a lot of my life really with this monotheistic idea, right? right? And so I thought Judaism was monotheism, and I pictured God as Rabbi Radinsky. So Rabbi Aaron taught me that Judaism is not monotheism and not pantheism, but panentheism. P-A-N-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-T. To be a panentheist. Panentheism. And this is like, why are we getting into these theological words or what are we in a philosophy course? I don't know how else to, to approach it. But panentheism is the synthesis of the two, right? Hashem is indeed imminent and everything is an expression of him as in pantheism, but at the same time, Hashem is transcendent as in monotheism. Meaning the, the, this distinction is so critical because on the one hand, it expresses the truth that there's nothing other than Hashem and everything is an expression of Hashem. But on the other hand, Hashem is ultimately transcendent and therefore reveals and expresses his holiness in the world in, in, a, in a tiered way. Like just, let's look at geography as an example, right? God created the whole world, but his eyes are always upon the land of Israel. And within Israel is the holy city of Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, right? I think it says that the, the world is the eye and the cornea is, the, is Israel and the, the pupil is Jerusalem. That's the analogy that the sages give. And the, the, the Temple Mount, that is the Holy of Holies. His holiness is revealed and expressed in this way right, in, in, on the Temple Mount more than any other place. God is everywhere and created everything, but the revelation of his holiness is different in different places and in different people and in different times. And so it's expressed in this way because it also gives us the opportunity to play our role in raising up the mundane to the spiritual in, in cooperation and in harmony with each other. Okay, so I want to go on, but I don't want to go on too much without calling on Andreas, because I did have this whole thing and asking questions. And if I just go on, that'd be silly. So Andreas, please, I would love to hear from you. Hello. Thank you. Okay. I'm Ruth. Sorry, Andreas is not today here. Oh, Ruth. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's because sometimes I'm here with my husband, but he's not present today. I'm the one who has the question. And I mean, we were kind of discussing the nature of, of this rebellion of Korah. And also, as I was studying the portion, I was asking myself if kind of like what happened with the discontentment uh, of the Israelites when they entered the land, if the root wasn't a discontentment direct with God and not being happy with the call that he has in your life, not being happy about what he has said that you should be. I mean, I think they knew God had appointed um, the priests, God had appointed the Levites and Moses. But in a way, I was asking myself, is it really maybe this contentment with God and he just comes up rebelling against the authority that God has given you? I mean, this is my question. So that is a beautiful question. I could not have engineered a better question because that's exactly what I want to discuss right now. How this discontentment that they had, in my opinion, and I could be wrong and I want to hear from all of you, is actually an outcropping of their misunderstanding of God himself. Meaning, I think Korach actually convinced himself he was actually authentically a pantheist, or he convinced himself that he was in order to be able to make this argument. And so it does breed this discontent, because as we said, 
when with God being transcendent and at the same time imminent, it creates this sort of tiered level of revelation of his holiness in the world. Which, by the way, Ruth, that's why each week when I bless the fellowship with the blessing of Aaron, the high priest, right, my favorite part of the fellowship, I try to give the same explanation. I explain that I'm not a descendant of Aaron. I'm not a Kohen. And so what, am, what business do I have to bless any of you? Well, in the temple and even in synagogues today, the Kohanim bless the nation of Israel. So does that mean that they're better than me? I'm, I'm an Israelite. I believe I'm from the tribe of Judah, but I have no proof of that, but I'm an Israelite. So are the Kohanim better than me? No, they're not better than me. Obviously not. It means that they are, they are one rung or two rungs higher on the ladder of holiness than I am. But that's not better. That's just different, right? They're there for a reason. They're there in order to raise me up. That's their purpose. And by allowing them to, to raise me up, I'm raising them up as well. That's their mission, to bless me and uplift me. And just as a priest is not better than an Israelite, an Israelite is not better than a non-Jew from the nations of the world. We simply have a purpose. And that purpose is to uplift and bless. And I'm going to get to your question. So this is why Korach's desire to become a Kohen Gadol, like you said, Ruth, was really from just discontent. It was just so sad and silly and tragic because everyone knows that's, that's what it was all about. That was his issue. It was that, that discontent, that envy. Remember, Korach asks Moshe, the most humble man in the world, why, Moshe, do you elevate yourself above everyone else? The most humble man of the world, he accuses of being arrogant. Mm -hmm. Right? And so he says, everyone's holy. And how does Moshe respond? He sees right through it. He proclaims to Korach, Hear now, mm -hmm. O offspring of Levi. It is not enough from you. Tabitha, if you can put that slide up. It is not enough from you that the God of Israel has segregated you from the assembly of Israel to draw you near to himself, mm -hmm. to perform the service of the tabernacle of Hashem, and to stand before the assembly to minister to them. Ruth, that's exactly what Moshe was saying. It's that discontent, meaning Moshe saw what was really happening, and he addressed the real issue. But if Korach really understood the nature of Hashem, then he truly wouldn't have been envious or ambitious of a position of power other than his own. He would have known in his head and internalized in his heart that Hashem is transcendent as well as imminent, and that, his, that Korach's limited intellect may not be able to grasp the unfathomable wisdom of a transcendent creator who created him in exactly the situation in which he would best be able to serve Hashem. Rav Moshe Breisky, he explains that the reason Hashem created man as an individual and not as a species, right, like the animal kingdom, this birds were created and animals were created, is the reason man was created as an individual is to teach that each man equals the world. And each man is his own world, uniquely picked for a specific mission that only that one person can perform. Each person has a mission to perfect the world in the way that only he or she can. And what is this world? What is this world that each person is sent with precise, perfect orchestration to perfect? It's whatever you wake up with in the morning your family, your job, your friends, your adversaries, your strength, your weaknesses, your personality, the circumstances of your life. That's what Rev. Breisky explains, that it's your world. And that's where the deepest purpose that you have can be found. That is your distinctive mission. 
And Korach had so much going for him, right? He was really prominent and he was super prestigious and he was very wealthy. He had so much, but it just, it wasn't enough for him. And so Rav Reisky actually brings the story. It's a famous Hasidic story, but it's just brief. The Rav Zusha, have you heard of Rav Zusha? He once shared the following idea with his students. He said, if I were offered a deal where I could trade, trade places with Abraham, Abraham Avinu, so that he would be Zusha and I would be Abraham, I wouldn't take it. For although I would benefit by being Abraham, what gain would there be for the Almighty? Right? What gain would there be for Hashem? He would still have one Abraham and one Zusha. Right? It's worth really reflecting on that. It's just so simple and so beautiful. Right? Korach demonstrated the truth that when you try to take someone else's place in the world, you end up losing your own. Right? When you try to take someone else's place and you're envying your neighbor and what he has or his wife or his possessions or his status, his situation, you're, you're losing your own place. You're going to just get swallowed up. Okay, so we're, we're a little bit over time. But um, and I know I said this week that I was going to launch my new thing that I'm really excited about, but it's going to have to wait until next week. It just wasn't fully ready yet. But when it is, I think you're really going to like it. But uh, let me leave for the moment um, by blessing you. By the way, right now, during the blessing, before the blessing, if anyone has a question, you can raise now. And then when, we, when I bless you and we say goodbye, if anyone wants to ask questions and stay on, let's do that. Tabitha, if it's okay with you, that's okay. Okay. And it's exciting. I'm giving that blessing, explaining why I, as an Israelite, are giving the blessing. That's what the entire fellowship was about. So, um, so let's, let's please, God, uh, Hashem, uh, allow us to, to fully and completely embrace and elevate and perfect our worlds, right? What you have given each of us. Allow us to internalize from our head into our hearts that you have orchestrated our lives perfectly and that the opportunity that we have to serve you is unparalleled. There's no other situation we would ever find ourselves in where we could serve you like we can serve you right now. Please, Hashem, help us realize that and, uh, and allow us to uplift each other in the way that you, Hashem, want us to. May we be sources of, of healing and love and unity and not argumentation and division and strife. And Hashem, may we, may each of us play our role in bringing about the great redemption for which we have all been praying since the beginning of time. We all feel it in our hearts that it's coming up any day, any moment now. Please Hashem, let us be a part of that. So now allow me to bless you the blessing of the high priest. Yivarechecha. Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichuneka, Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisem lecha shalom. May Hashem bless you and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you and may He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship 
and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.